This is They Create Worlds, Episode 41, Beating Them All Up. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Round one. Fight! We're fighting now? Of course we are. We're very good at fighting games. I'm not. But you love Street Fighter 2. Well, yeah, way back in the day. But <laughs> I certainly don't do fighting games anymore, but that is the topic of today's conversation. Well, that's a start. <laughs> We have fighting games where you had things like Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter 2, Tekken, that other game that we played. And then you had beat-em-ups like River City Ransom, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Double Dragon. That's right. There was a period of time when the fighting game and the beat-em-up were really some of the premier games and best-selling games out there, and they kind of represented the perfect synergy between the arcade and the home, because particularly fighting games more than beat-em-ups, they were a game where it could become a spectacle in the arcade, and where you could have a parade of challengers coming by and a host of other people watching and waiting to challenge, and it becomes an event that really drives coin drop. But then, as everyone gets good at those fighting games... Green Newbie doesn't necessarily want to learn the fighting game in the arcade, and so then everyone wants to own the fighting games in the home and learn how to play them there before they go to the arcade and try to show off. And so they really became one of the biggest genres, if not the biggest genre, in video gaming for a brief period of time in the 80s and 90s. And I can remember just seeing them everywhere. You had The Simpsons had a beat-em-up game. <laughs> they did. Depending on the cabinet, it could be two players or four players, and you always wanted to play the four-player one because nothing says fun, like four Simpsons running around destroying everything. And then, of course, a couple of years after that, there was an X-Men game that was available in a six-player cabinet. Did I play that one? I don't know. I never did. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah, X-Men uh, by Konami, same as the Simpsons game, came in a six-player configuration. That must have been glorious. Mm -hmm. We may have a slight preference for the beat-em-ups over the straight fighter. Yeah, I probably just because when I was a younger kid, that's really when the beat-em-ups were reigning supreme rather than the fighting games. And so those were always the games that I tended to play at the arcades in the late 1980s. I never really played the fighters in the arcade, though I played a lot of Street Fighter II on the Super Nintendo back in the day. Yeah. And then one of our friend's older brother kind of made our lives miserable in Street Fighter 2. Yeah, well, you know, that's why we didn't play him very much. That's okay. That's okay. So beat-em-ups. Fighters. It's obviously there's no one game that sort of defined this. It's sort of something that developed organically over time. Because I think there were some... Primitive fighters, even as far back on the Atari and other consoles. But when did it really become a thing? 
Well, there really weren't fighting games as we think of them today in the very early days of the industry in the 70s and early 80s or on the consoles of the time. And the reason for that is really a technological one. You could not do a fighting game until you could animate a human figure convincingly. The arcade hardware of the time just couldn't do that very well. It's no surprise that shooters were so dominant in the arcade in that time period because a spaceship doesn't need much animation. I mean, you do some little animations with the sprite and whatnot, but they tend to be just little repetitive animations. It's not like you have a multi-jointed, articulated human being with kung fu grip that you have to render on the screen, which takes so much processing power and so much design power just to make that happen. So there are some games that are considered, quote-unquote, the first fighting games that appeared in this period, but they're not fighting games in the sense that we think of them today. Sort of like uh, Kung Fu. And This is even before that. Even before that. We're talking before that, late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Before the crash. What game would exemplify this? So the, the very first game that seems to have involved a competition between two human figures was a Sega game from 1976 called Heavyweight Champ. It was a boxing game. I would not, generally speaking, number boxing games amongst the fighting games just because it feels like since boxing is more of a real sport, that boxing is more of a sports theme than it is uh, a fighting game theme, which tends to involve more martial arts and, and more fantastic kind of combat. Now, that's that's just Alex Smith's personal definition. Uh, these kinds of things, since scholars haven't done much work with video games yet, there really hasn't been a lot of definitive classification of things. So where does a fighting game stop and where does a boxing game or another kind of sports game begin? I don't know. But the very first combat between two human opponents was this heavyweight champ game. And the reason that back in 1976 they could have a competition against two humans is that the boxing figures were just there on the screen. They were still images. The only thing that moved was their little arm that you could position at different levels And it had this boxing glove controller where you'd move it up and down to move where the arm is and then push it in to throw a punch. So basically, it's, you know, these two arms and you're trying to get your arm in a position where the other guy's arm isn't to punch him. But it's not a fully animated fighting game. This is pretty primitive and certainly wasn't successful. I don't even know if it was released in the United States or released in large quantities For all I know, it did better in Japan. Japanese figures that period, very hard to come by in English, obviously. But I mean, it it was nothing. There was nothing really to it. The first popular fighting game was a game called Warrior, released by Cinematronics in 1979. Warrior was a vector graphics game. So that allowed it to have a little better resolution than other games being released in the late 70s. Of course, with vector graphics, you're just talking about outlines of things because it's drawing lines from a point to another point in a direction, hence vector. (laughs) A vector is a feed and a direction. (laughs) And so that's what it is with each of these lines being directly drawn by the CRT. So it allowed it to be a little higher resolution. But again, you didn't have the ability to animate that back in the day. So this was a top-down game. It was a game between two sword fighters. 
and you could move around and you could swing your sword around, but you couldn't do both at the same time due to budget constraints. He originally wanted it to be a dual joystick game where one would move and one would swing the sword. They didn't have the money for two joysticks, so instead there's a button that switches you between the modes. So you move around with the joystick, hit the button to go into swing mode. And and so there's this kind of this overhead slash at each other, try to run into each other kind of game, essentially. So again, it's not really a fighting game in the way we think of it today, because they're barely recognizable as human characters. You're basically just swinging this pointy vector sword around, trying to whack the other person. Those are kind of some of the early analogs to fighting games. But you needed to be able to fully animate a character in order to do a fighting game. And the ability to do that wasn't really coming into focus until the early 1980s. I mean, there were a couple of games in the Golden Age that had more animated characters. Mario was a more animated character, though, again, a very limited number of animations because he only has to do a few different moves like climbing ladders or jumping. A fighting game, you have to fully animate a human body. You need to have something that can be effectively punch, kick, sometimes high-low versions of each of those, moving back and forth, maybe some ducking, some kind of blocking. Mm-hmm. So you're a lot looking, of different moves. A lot of different moves. Even at a decent fighting game, at least a traditional fighting game, not a beat-em-up, you have high-low or high-medium-low punch, high-medium-low kick block. That would probably be the very basic. Plus, of course, some walking animations and some jumping animations Mm -hmm. as well. So then by 1982, you had even some more sophisticated animation in games. There was a game called Jungle Hunt from Taito that was a big hit. It was a run and jump kind of game. But the point is, it's an even more fluidly animated figure and a larger animated figure than even a Mario is. So the technology is slowly progressing towards that. Of course, right in this time period, you kind of get an interruption in the market because of the arcade downturn in the United States. It really isn't until 1984 that the first fighting games emerge. And there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, you have kind of the explosion of Hong Kong cinema and martial arts movies. You know, the first person that really brought attention to martial arts movies in Hong Kong cinema was Bruce Lee, who starred in a series of five movies in the early 1970s before tragically passing away at the age of 32, very young. So by 1984, you're getting to the point where you have game designers that grew up with some of those Bruce Lee movies, and you have teenagers that have maybe started to discover them as well. This is also the period where Jackie Chan becomes an international star, is the early 80s, uh, with his kind of comedic martial arts movies. And again, that's a pushing of Hong Kong cinema. So you've got this martial arts stuff kind of permeating the popular culture a little bit. And then you have the technological drive to improve animation of video game characters. These kind of competing drives kind of come together, and that's how you end up with developers starting to take an interest in making fighting games, and why over the course of the next decade and a half or so, the fighting game kind of becomes the go-to genre when you're trying to create new improvements in graphics and in animation, because there's certainly nothing more difficult to animate that gets animated on a regular basis than a human being. 
if you're doing a fighting game kind of thing, you're using all parts of the human being, so to speak. It's not, I mean, in a platform game, you just need to have a few jump animations. Or if it's a run and gun kind of game, you just basically need some walking around animations. But as we said just a few moments ago, when you're doing a fighting game, you have to animate everything. And so it's a great way to push the boundaries of animation forward in general. The first fighting games appear from a couple of different sources. There are three games that come out in 1984. Each of them are important in getting the ball rolling. I'm not sure how influential any of them were on subsequent developments in terms of borrowing from them, other than the general martial arts theme and whatnot. But there's three games that come out in this period. The first is a computer game, an Apple II game, Karateka, by Jordan Mechner, who then later goes on to do Prince of Persia. He created Karateka specifically because he wanted to move the state of the art in animation forward. He did work for Broderbund. He was not an employee. Broderbund used a lot of independent contractors, but he did work for Broderbund. And he was incredibly impressed with the Broderbund game Choplifter, which is a classic of the early 1980s. It's basically, in some ways, Defender in a Helicopter. That's oversimplifying a little bit, but you're rescuing hostages in the desert, kind of an Iran hostage kind of motif, avoiding shooting down enemies that are trying to stop you, that kind of thing, as you're rescuing these hostages. Jordan Mechner was very impressed by the animation in that game, very smoothly animated for an Apple II game. So he wanted to take that and kind of apply it to this human setting because he's interested. There's a period of time where he thinks he's going to be a screenwriter. I mean, he's very interested in the cinema. He does some pioneering rotoscoping techniques to create karateka, where he actually, I think it's a karate instructor, a martial arts instructor, that he actually films doing various karate moves and then draws over that to animate it. It's rotoscoping. It's something that had been done in cartoons for quite some time at that point, but hadn't really been applied to video games before. Karateka, it's a series of one-on-one contests. It's more of a beat-em-up than a fighting game because there's no versus mode. It's just you're playing the hero, your girlfriend has been abducted, and you have to go to the bad guy's castle and you take on his minions one at a time in these karate bouts. And then you have to uh, walk up to the princess slowly and bow to her respectfully, or if you just walk up to her and talk to her without bowing, she kicks you in the head, which one-shots you, and then you have to play through it again. Wow. <laughs> Be nice. Be nice, boys. Behave. And be respectful. That's right. Be respectful. So that game comes out, sells 500,000 copies altogether over the course of a few years. That's a big hit. On the, that's a massive hit on PCs at the time. The other two games both come out of Japan. One of those is uh, what's called Spartan X in Japan, but is known in the West as Kung Fu. This game was created by a fellow named Takishi Nishiyama, who's going to come up in our story again. And it was actually a tie-in to a Jackie Chan movie. Not one of his more famous movies, but a movie called Wheels on Meals, which makes no sense. Apparently, the reason for that, it was supposed to be called Meals on Wheels, like the program. But the producer, his last two movies had started the name, the titles had started with an M, and they both bombed. And so he was superstitious and didn't want a third movie starting with an M. So instead of Meals on Wheels, it was Wheels on Meals, which makes absolutely no sense. But it's Hong Kong comedic cinema. Does it really have to make sense? No. But in Japan, it was called Spartan X. I have no idea why. But that's why the game was called Spartan X 
in Japan. So it's a very basic kind of beat-em-up game. You're just scrolling forward in one direction. Most very limited moveset. Most enemies just die in one hit. There are a small number of enemies and a couple of mini-bosses that take more hits. But it's really not that much different than a shooter or something like that, except that you have animated human characters instead of rocket ships and whatnot. It's a very basic action game. But that's that's the starting point for the beat-em-up genre, and it was a direct tie-in with uh, a Hong Kong cinema movie. The other game that comes out and is really the big hit uh, of this year, 1984, is Karate Champ. Karate Champ is the first player versus player one-on-one fighting game with a martial arts theme. And unlike the later games, it's very rooted in real karate. There's no life bars or really strange special moves and whatnot. It's it's a bout of karate. So you score points by scoring a hit on your opponent and get three points or whatever it is, you win the match. And it's a dual joystick setup, so one for moving and one for executing various attacks. So there are some different moves based on how you manipulate those two joysticks, but it's not it's not the crazy array of special hidden moves with complex joystick moves and button presses that you would come to expect from a fighting game later. But this game is a sizable hit in the arcade. It's put out by Data East, and it's one of the very first sizable hits after the downturn of the industry that hit in mid-1982. It falls right in the cracks in the United States in terms of home games. It's never so big on the home in the United States because this is the period of time when the video game industry, the home video game industry, is completely dead. So it doesn't get much in the way of ports. In the UK, in Europe, it's very influential. And there are several karate games that come out after Karate Champ on the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64, most notably International Karate and Way of the Exploding Fist, that build on this idea of these martial arts games, because this briefly becomes uh, an incredibly kind of popular subgenre there. In the U.S., it just hits in a period where there isn't really a home market to do anything with. There is a port of Karate Champ to like the C64 and whatnot in the late 80s. And it does, that does well. It sells half a million copies, which again is phenomenally huge on a computer platform in that time period. But it's never big on the NES. It's originally released on the NES, but by then the the world has, has kind of moved on. Kung Fu was actually a, a launch title on the NES. Uh, Black Box. Yep. Irem was the company that did the game, but Irem didn't have an American branch, so they licensed both that and their football game, 10-Yard Fight, to Nintendo, and Nintendo released them on the NES as part of the initial wave of launch titles. They were the only two launch titles that were not actually created by Nintendo itself, that they actually sourced from an outside company. That game obviously got some play just because it was one of the first ones out there, though I wouldn't categorize it as a major massive hit either. It really wasn't the one-on-one fighting game or that very simplistic kind of kung fu game that ignited the craze for fighting games. It was really the game Renegade and its follow-up, Double Dragon, 
that really set things in motion. Yes, Double Dragon was a very, very big game. I remember that thing being in the arcade. You were just flabbergasted with the colors, the animation, the story of the punk stole my girlfriend. I'm getting revenge. <laughs> That's right. And uh, the creator of those games uh, was a fellow named uh, Yoshihisa Kishimoto, who started at Data East, but then went to work for Technos Japan Corporation that was founded by a couple of former Data East executives, most notably Kunio Taki, who was the president of the company. Kishimoto, as a youth, was a bad character. He was a delinquent adolescent type. He cut class all the time. He ran around with his fellow school buddies in, in a gang, essentially. I mean, not as hard a gang as like Crips and Blood kind of stuff that you find in, in the United States, but it was a gang and they would go around and fight gangs from rival schools, uh, all wearing their school uniforms and <laughs> you know beating up each other. And he was a very directionless kind of bad kid, but he kind of managed to straighten himself out a bit. And he went to design school after high school because that's really all he could do. He was kind of interested in graphic design, animation, and thought that he might make movies. And with his grades, it was really the only thing he could pursue. He decided after a bit that it would take way too long to become a filmmaker, just too many hoops to jump through. But that in this relatively new field of video game design, he could get to it much quicker. And so... He joined Data East and did a couple of titles with them before joining the new Technos Japan Corporation. He really wanted to create something with more depth and more realism than the current games in the arcade. The arcade was very much in this period dominated by shoot-em-ups, by space shooters. He thought that those were kind of very simplistic, just auto-scrolling, blast everything on the screen not really much story behind them, et cetera, et cetera. And that didn't fit his sensibilities. So he wanted to do something with a little more depth. And he drew quite naturally on his own background. He was a huge fan of Bruce Lee and of martial arts movies, Hong Kong cinema. So he's got that. And he also had his own background as a tough guy in high school. He was in a gang and he was street fighting. And so he wanted to do that. He wanted something grittier, too. So he wanted to do some kind of fighting game because it felt more grounded and realistic than these space shooters. And he wanted something grittier than a karate match, something like Karate Champ, that felt like it was real and in your face and in the streets. And so he drew on his own background and created this game that in the U.S. was called Renegade, but in Japan was called Niketsu Koha Kunio-kun which translates essentially as hot-blooded, tough-guy Kunio. It was named after the president of the company, Kunio Taki, who was apparently also a bit of a bad boy and a bit of a hothead when he was in school. So Kishimoto based it on his own experiences, but then actually they named the game after his boss, who also had similar experiences. This game was basically you, the protagonist, in your school uniform with your school colors, beating up rival gangs in the school uniforms of, of other schools. It was exactly the kind of thing that Kishimoto was doing in his own youth. It was a scrolling game, but it took place on a fixed kind of arena that took up more than a single screen, so you could walk back and forth 
within this fixed area and it would scroll a bit, but it wasn't a forward scrolling kind of beat em up of the time we commonly associate with the genre. So they do this Kunio game in 1986, and it does all right in Japan, and they want to bring it to the U.S. as well. They license it to Taito because they don't manufacture their own games in the United States. They obviously need to change the theme of it because all of these characters in traditional Japanese school uniforms, that's not really going to play to an American audience. That's just not the visual image that they're going to be looking for. So... He takes inspiration from the movie The Warriors. Are you familiar with The Warriors? No, I'm not. Oh, it's a it's a cult classic from 1979, I think, about a gang, a smaller gang in New York City, and basically all the gangs come to this big meeting where this one guy's going to try to unite all of these different gangs into this one big force, and then ends up getting raided, and everyone gets dispersed, and then this small gang has to make it back home while avoiding both the police and all the rival gangs that they're moving through the territory of to get back to their home. And all of these gangs are dressed in these really outlandish costumes. It's very over-the-top kind of thing. The whole leather, machismo, spiked collars, spiked jackets. Well, it's, it's it's all different kinds of uniforms. So there's some of that, but there's some that are completely different in other kind of bizarre ways. You can... Check out screenshots or or clips online, but it's uh, you know kind of outlandish in that way. And so he takes inspiration from the Warriors and transfers it to kind of a urban New York City style setting with these different gangs and these different costumes, kind of like the Warriors. And then they name it Renegade instead of Hot Blooded Tough Guy Cuneo or some similar translation because that's not going to resonate at all with a U.S. or a European audience either. So it gets a worldwide release as Renegade. And it does really well overseas in both the United States and Europe. It's a pretty sizable hit. So when it comes time to do another game, because it's popular enough that it deserves a sequel, at first he was going to do a Kunio Kun 2 kind of game. His bosses were like, we wasted so much time with the original game converting the assets to be palatable to a Western audience. Let's not do that again. Let's make something that's going to appeal to the West right off the bat. So he knows he wants this one to be a two-player game. He figures that he'll build on that same kind of setting that Renegade had, which is these urban settings and these kind of urban gang kind of things. Again, he's a huge fan of Bruce Lee. So the protagonists are the Lee brothers. Bruce Lee's most famous movie I think definitely fair to say is Enter the Dragon. So, Dragon, Enter the Dragon. And it's two-player game. So there are two of them. So double. Double Dragon. That's where you get the name from. This one is just absolutely massive. It's two-player, which is good. And it has other improvements, like using weapons. And that came about because the enemies in Renegade would have weapons, but not you, the protagonist. So if you knocked out a character that had a weapon, the weapon would be sitting there next to him while he's knocked out because that's just the graphic of it. And so he sees that one day. He's like, wouldn't it be cool if with that weapon just lying there, if you just could pick it up and use it? And he didn't have enough time to put that into Renegade because this was late in development, but he put that into Double Dragon. He also made these scrolling worlds. And this is the point where the basic formula of the beat-em-up is established because 
he had to decide how this game was going to scroll. At that time, most games, at least in terms of shooters, that took up multiple screens were forced scrollers because your ship's just going and then you worry about shooting things as you go. There were a few run and guns that weren't, but forced scrolling was really the big thing. Well, he decided he didn't want forced scrolling because the idea is to have these more in-depth one-on-one fights, because in both Renegade and Double Dragon, what sets it apart from shooters and even Kung Fu Master that came out earlier is that you often engage in an extended bout of combat with even the most basic street tough will take a bunch of different hits to kill. So that's not going to work with forced trolling, obviously. The other thing could just be that you could just walk whenever you wanted to walk, you know, just keep walking forward. But theoretically, if you do that, it means that you could walk all the way to the end of the map without fighting anybody. But then, because the enemies would still be generated as you went along, when you got to the end of the screen and there was no place else to go, then you'd have to fight the entire level's worth of enemies that all at once. That has a lot of resource eating. I mean, if it takes Yo, sure. whatever it takes to load a character, if you're loading 20 characters and you got the players on top of that, more than the hardware could potentially handle. Well, yes, and in fact, Double Dragon, even the way it was, was more than the hardware could handle. Double Dragon would slow down at times, mm-hmm. even in the arcade. We're not just talking about on consoles. In the arcade, it would slow down, which just goes to show again how processor-intensive it really is to animate a bunch of human figures. That's why it took so long to get to the point that we had these games, because people were interested in Bruce Lee and in martial arts in the 70s. There could have very well been a martial arts-themed game that would have been very popular in the 70s with all the Bruce Lee stuff going on. But you could not animate that. Even here in 1987, Double Dragon, getting more than four or so characters on the screen, started making it a chore for the processors, for the arcade hardware at the time, which is the more expensive, more capable hardware, to keep up with all that animation. So because of this, he comes up with what becomes the standard system in beat-em-ups, which is move, fight, move. You move for a bit, and then you get to a point where the scrolling stops, and the enemies come in, maybe one or two at a time, maybe three at a time, however many. You have your fight with them. After you beat some of them, maybe a few more come in. And then finally, when that part of the screen is cleared, you can move forward again, and you often get this little pointing hand or whatever saying, go, 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 you can move now. It was Double Dragon that established that formula, and, and again, it's beca- it seems so basic today. It seems so obvious that's the way a beat-em-up would be, but as you can see, it took Kishimoto doing some real thinking about how you want that to scroll, because when something's new, <laughs> even what seems obvious to us today has never been done before. Yeah, it can think of just how many beat-em-ups, as time has gone on, they move from left to right, the screen scrolls, it stops. You got all this stuff coming into you, and then you always have go next or some sort of movement Mm -hmm. thing. You can see that with Golden Axe, which is a favorite game of mine, Mm -hmm. where it does the same thing. You move so far, it stops scrolling. You have things on the field to beat up. Then you got go, go, next, next. Mm -hmm. You got the same thing with an arcade beat-em-up classic of Dungeons & Dragons. Mm Mm-hmm. The same thing. You have four players running around, beating up things. You can only go so far. It almost brings a sense of tension to the moment, especially when you get closer to the boss. Because a lot of times, especially with later games down the line, 
and I'm thinking more of how Dungeons & Dragons did this, where you had more encounters after shorter, shorter, and shorter screen transitions, Mm -hmm. and more of them swarm in, and it's sort of like, I'm getting closer to something. I'm getting more of these monsters coming in. And then when you finally get to the boss, it's a big transition moment, a little bit of forced transition as your character is taken away from you as he moves to the center of the screen. The screen transitions over. You have this big intro of the boss coming in. It really helps with the narrative almost with having a combination of forced perspective with the screen and auto-scrolling with the screen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Double Dragon creates a formula that is, quite frankly, an absolutely winning formula. I mean, these games are somewhat popular in Japan, but I think they're really popular in the West. The shoot-'em-ups that dominated in Japan so much in the late 80s never quite reached the same level of popularity in the United States. Obviously, games like Radius and R-Type and whatnot were popular here, too, and some of the run and guns as well, like your Ikari Warriors or your Commando or your Guerrilla War. But these games really struck a chord, and they were great for arcade operators. They really fit the economics of the arcade really well, because the shooting games, the, the space shooters, the shmups, they really can't do simultaneous two-player play. Those are really just going to be one-player games because you've got a screen full of enemies and having two players try to keep track of their vehicles at the same time and all of that chaos, it just doesn't work very well. So space shooters tend to be one-player only, or if they're two-player, it's it's alternating, it's taking turns. Running guns can, can be two-player, but not the shmups. The great thing about a beat-em-up, like a double dragon or a bad dude's, or uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is maybe one person starts playing, just walks up, puts a quarter in, starts playing. Then maybe uh, a minute later, somebody else comes by and sees that he's playing, and that kind of encourages him to put a coin in the second slot. Or as these games continue to develop, you have a lot of three- or four-player games, and one six-player game, (laughs) that's very unusual. And so then maybe a couple of buddies go to the arcade together, And so they start playing together, but there's just the two of them there. And so there's that extra joystick there that's just beckoning for someone to come up and join them. You get a lot of simultaneous play, and you get a lot of perfect strangers coming up and playing games together because of the way this works. I remember uh, the day I beat Final Fight, (laughs) big Capcom beat him up in the arcade uh, when I was a young kid in the 80s. My friend and I were at the arcade, and we played straight through. Took a lot of quarters, of course, but... We played straight through, and it's a three-player game. So every so often, that third joystick would be taken by somebody else. It wasn't, there wasn't someone there playing constantly, but it was always there. It was always beckoning that third player to come in and, and join. And so that's a real money driver, because at this point, the arcade business, even though it was recovering, it wasn't the same level of craziness. There wasn't the same level of patronage of the arcade that you had in the early 1980s in the so-called golden age. Arcade operators were kind of faced with two choices, essentially. You could create bigger, more elaborate games that had capability in them that absolutely could not be done in the home. We're talking about these full motion cabinet kind of things like uh, Hang On and Outrun from Sega that came out in this time period. And then charge a premium for those because they're more complex games 
or you can encourage more multiplayer gameplay with multiple people playing at the same time. And you see, the first approach only worked in your large arcades because those are big, expensive cabinets. I mean, my local arcade never had a hang-on or an outrun because my local ar arcade was a very small strip mall arcade. There were bigger arcades in some of the shopping malls that could have games like that, but not my little corner arcade, strip mall arcade, and certainly not your 7-Eleven or your grocery store or your laundromat. Street locations didn't have as many games in this period as they had in the early 80s, but still, street locations were a part of this too, so you couldn't put the big cabinets in there. So the best thing for these kind of locations was to have those two, three, four-player games. And some of them were beat-em-ups, like the ones we're talking about. Some of them were, say, Gauntlet, which was hugely popular. Or Rampage, which I guess is kind of, in a way, a beat-em-up, but <laughs> it's a different kind of beat-em-up. Beat up those buildings. That's right. And beat up each other a little bit if the mood strikes you. <laughs> so beat-em-ups were perfect because, unlike the shooters, you could really cram three, four, six players around a single cabinet and have them all have something to do and have them all have something to be engaged with. It also seems like it's also a little bit of redemption, pseudo-redemption, because you go in there, you play, you lose your character. It does a countdown of 10, 9, yep. 8, 7, put in a coin, put in a coin, 6, 5. Right. And then you go, oh, I got this far. I really want to continue. I put in my quarter where someone else is watching you and goes, hey, you're doing really good. You just had a bit of bad luck. I want to continue watching you. I'll put in that quarter. Right. Or, you know, you're playing with your friends. So, I mean, you know, if you're already there playing with a friend, you know, if you're just playing alone and you get frustrated and die, you might be like, well, I'm not playing this game again. But if your buddy's still playing here and you die and that countdown's going 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, well, you're not going to stop the game now. Your buddy's still playing. You got to put another quarter in and get back in, even if it's kind of frustrated you. So it's great for coin drop. The entire beat-em-up idea is wonderful for coin drop. And that's why it kind of, I think, it becomes such a big deal in the arcade. Obviously, the people like the games. If the people didn't like the games, they wouldn't play them. But it was perfect for arcade economics. It just worked really well for that. The cooperative aspect of it. Fighting games in this period were happening. They weren't really driving the arcade at this point. And I don't know exactly why that is, whether it's just because one-on-one -on -one fights are more difficult to do with AI than player versus a horde, or whether there was a reticence to, to do competitive games instead of cooperative games. I think in Japan, there was a little more reticence towards kind of the competitive games, because as we'll see in a, a bit, even Street Fighter II had a little bit of a problem getting started for that reason. There were a couple of fighting games in this period, but they were not the big things. There was a Konami game that came out in 1985 called Yi'ar Kung Fu. I don't know how big a hit it was in Japan or the United States. It's, it's a game that some people know today, but was never huge. But it introduced some of the conventions. Street Fighter was heavily influenced by it because a couple of the characters in ER Kung Fu are very similar to characters that were in Street Fighter. And it had the whole fighting people from all around the world that had different fighting styles. It was the game that introduced life bars to fighting games. As it unfortunately is with some of these Japanese games, Karate Champ, don't know who developed it, don't know the inspirations behind it, don't know any of the stories behind it. ER Kung Fu is the same way. 
when you're lucky, you get someone like Ishimoto that's been interviewed in the West, and so you know why Renegade happened, you know why Double Dragon happened. So many of these early Japanese games you don't. Yi'ar Kung Fu gets that game uh, rolling a little bit. And then in 1987, you have Street Fighter. And Street Fighter is made by Nishiyama, who we mentioned earlier, who did the Kung Fu Master game, the Spartan X game, when he was at Irem. He left Irem to go to Capcom because actually the founder of Capcom was the person that founded Irem. And then he sold a majority interest of his company to one of his suppliers, a monitor company named Nanao, uh, in 1980. And a couple of years after that, he ended up being forced out of the company he founded. So uh, Kenzo Tujimoto, the founder of Irem, then founded Capcom. And so Nishiyama ended up leaving Irem to go work for Tujimoto at Capcom. Nishiyama was inspired to create Street Fighter for some of the same reasons that Kishimoto was inspired to create Double Dragon. He was interested in martial arts. I think he was even training in martial arts at the time. He felt that arcade games should have more depth of story and depth of substance to them, just like Kishimoto did. He decided to do that through this one-on-one fighting game where you would have all of these different characters and these characters would have backstories. There's not as much backstory and whatnot in the original Street Fighter as there would be in subsequent games. Obviously, there's all sorts of lore that gets developed through the games, through manga, through anime, and all of this craziness through the uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. He didn't actually get a lot of story into the original Street Fighter, but that's kind of where he was coming from. He wanted these different characters in this fighting tournament, and because he was interested in martial arts, he wanted to be martial artsy. And he presumably took some inspiration from Yi'ar Kung Fu to make it a little more kind of fantastical. Uh, You know, he puts in things like the Hadouken, which is actually based on Space Battleship Yamato. In Space Battleship Yamato, the, the ship has this charging, you know, this big cannon that it charges up and then launches this big bolt. That was his influence for the Hadoken, is this same idea, except obviously a person instead of a spaceship. So he creates Street Fighter. The original thing they do, they actually partner with Atari for this. Because Atari has a machine shop and is known for custom controllers. The original version of Street Fighter has these big, like, buttons that you actually punch in order to do attacks. The amount of force you put into your punch determines how powerful an attack you make. So Street Fighter and its six-button control scheme with different levels of punch and kick and whatnot, that originates because the original control was a pressure-sensitive thing where the harder you pressed on it, the more powerful your attack was. But the slower it was. Exactly. And so that got translated into a multi-button control scheme when they revised it because that control scheme was just not working. People were injuring themselves using it. So even the original Street Fighter then was released with a six-button control scheme, and then obviously Street Fighter 2 has the six-button control scheme. But that's how the different levels of attack originated, is because it was created for a completely different type of control system. It was created by Atari. It wasn't created by Capcom. The game was, just not the control system, the cabinet. Street Fighter doesn't do great. The original control scheme is a mess. The game is just kind of pedestrian. Beat-em-ups are really ruling the roost. No one's really that interested in this Street Fighter fighting game. I certainly never knew at the time there had been a game called Street Fighter. First one I ever heard of was Street Fighter 2, and it's like, where was Street Fighter (laughs) 1? I don't know what this Street Fighter 1 was. 
it didn't have the whole crazy cast of characters. Ken and Ryu are the main characters in it. And that's why Ken and Ryu are so similar to each other, which is why in, in the subsequent Street Fighter games, they have essentially the same moveset. As time went on, they made some different differentiation between them. But in the original Street Fighter 2, there was none. That's because these were the characters from the original game, and so they had the same moveset because they weren't doing all of these crazy different movesets because those were the only two playable characters in the original game, and then you fought some other characters. So that really looked like it would be all she wrote for this Street Fighter thing because it didn't do that great. And so then Capcom management came back and told them that for the next Street Fighter game that they wanted them to do a beat-em-up because the beat-em-ups were big. Double Dragon was huge in the arcade and was huge on the NES. Trade West is the company that got the home license, and they sold 2 million copies of Double Dragon on the NES, which was phenomenal. I mean, Nintendo released games would sometimes sell 4 million or more, but 2 million was about as good as any third-party NES game did in the U.S. So, I mean, that, was, that game was insanely popular, even though the port was very compromised. It was only one player, for instance. The animation was poor. The color scheme was poor. The number of characters you could have on the screen was less. You and it still slowed down. <laughs> and it still slowed down. Yep. And it was only a one-player game. They couldn't put the two-player. Right. Double Dragon 1 on the NES was really, really inferior compared to the arcade. Absolutely. Because the beat-em-ups are the hit, they say do a beat-em-up. And so they start a game called Street Fighter 89, where their goal is basically to have these really large, really animated characters to make it stand out from the double dragons of the world by being kind of more colorful and bigger and, and larger than life. They took Street Fighter 89 around to some trade shows and whatnot, and people were like, this isn't Street Fighter. Street Fighter is a guy over here fighting a guy over here. This isn't Street Fighter. So they're like, fine, we won't call it Street Fighter. We'll call it Final Fight. So Final Fight actually started out under the name Street Fighter 89. Really? Because they had the, the IP already. There wasn't a fighting genre. There really, in the minds of people, wasn't much of a difference between the beat-em-up genre and the, and the fighting genre. Those, that's a distinction we make today, but they were all kind of games involving martial arts and punching and kicking and, and whatnot. Blunt trauma weapons. Sure. So they used the Street Fighter name for a beat-em-up, and then people were like, that's not a Street Fighter game because <laughs> it's so different. So they gave it the name Final Fight. And Final Fight was a big hit. Capcom wanted them to do a sequel of that, but the development division that was doing all of these games, well, not all these games because Nishiyama did Street Fighter, but then Nishiyama actually went on to... SNK. He was headhunted by SNK and took control of their fighting game series, the, the Fatal Fury series. Fatal Fury is always kind of considered a Street Fighter knockoff because it was released around the same time as Street Fighter 2 and everything. And it is a knockoff in the sense it was another fighting game. But the thing is, it was actually created by the creator of the original Street Fighter. So in a way, Street Fighter 2 is the knockoff because it was created by a different team. The Fatal Fury games, of course, became known for their elaborate backstories for all their characters. So that's Nishiyama fulfilling his ambition that he had even with the first Street Fighter of arcade game with depth of story. So the person that's in charge of the development division that does Final Fight is a fellow named Yoshiki Akamoto. This guy is a rebel. He's a character, a practical joker, a rebel, very atypical Japanese in that sense. If there is really such a thing as a typical Japanese, obviously stereotypes get blown out of proportion. But 
He's a very lively, colorful individual. And he was fired by Konami because he created a hit game called Time Pilot that was a scrolling shooter. But he was supposed to be creating a driving game, and the driving game was completely uninteresting to him. So he sent his boss, his immediate supervisor, false reports about the driving game he was working on and made the game he wanted to make instead. Oh, dear. And it was a big hit. Time Pilot was a hit, but, you know, that didn't end well for him, so he was fired from there. And then went to work for Capcom and became one of their uh, development department heads. Well, after Final Fight did well, his superiors, Tsujimoto and whatnot, wanted a sequel. They wanted uh, Final Fight 2. But at this point, Okamoto decided that he didn't really want to do the same thing again. He'd rather go back and do another Street Fighter game. He never lied to upper management like he lied about Time Pilot because he was just a, a low-level planner when he did Time Pilot. Now he is a development division head. So he, he didn't uh, obscure what he was doing, but he essentially disobeyed orders and instead of doing Final Fight 2, decided to go back to the Street Fighter concept because it got a little bit of buzz in the U.S. And, you know, people were a little disappointed and complained a bit when Final Fight was called a Street Fighter game. So that indicated that there may actually be a market for this kind of game, even though the first one didn't do as well for whatever reason. So he puts a team together. Okamoto does not actually have anything to do with the design of the game. It's his department that does it. He decides that his department's going to do it, and then he puts a team together. The thing about Street Fighter II, part of the reason the Japanese games always looked and played so beautifully compared to some of their Western counterparts in this time period, is that a team in the U.S. by this time, an arcade team, is maybe four or five people. Maybe a couple of programmers, a designer, a couple of artists, a sound person, and then, you know, there's probably a hardware guy and some technicians or whatnot, but maybe a team is three to five people with a couple of other support staff. A typical Japanese team at this time is probably closer to 20 people. Lots of animators, lots of musicians, lots of artists. Street Fighter II had a team somewhere between 30 and 40 people. That is a lot for that time. It's a whole lot. And this is part of why the game is, A, so creative and inventive and outlandish, because each person wanted to outdo the next person. So characters and moves kept getting more and more outlandish and crazy as the people responsible for different characters strive to one-up each other and make theirs the best. But it also meant that, I mean, it just had great animation and great art and great music and great everything just because they threw so many people at that product. And it was expensive. Akimoto has said, and he could be exaggerating a little bit, but Akimoto has said if Street Fighter 2 had failed, Capcom could have been in serious trouble because that game was expensive to make. It is still fairly iconic today. There are memes out there of Guile theme. <laughs> Guile's music goes with everything. Of course it does. So this is definitely a game that has had a lot of influence to this day. It was huge. It came along at the right time. It's, it's kind of everything was building towards this. The beat-em-ups were popular. The multiplayer games were popular. And it's just that Street Fighter II took everything that some of these companies had learned about animation and art and movesets and whatnot and just threw it into this huge for the time game with this huge team behind it that could make it absolutely top notch. And it took off. In Japan, 
at first, it was largely only being played as a single player game. People were kind of too shy to take each other on. So what they did is they created a, a cabinet version where it was two cabinets linked together and facing each other. And the Japanese arcade cabinets are very different from our cabinets. They tend to be uniform. You don't have all of this different cabinet art and cabinet design. It's like they're all in these this standard kind of cabinet, and, and most of them are are ones you sit down at. They're not they're not coffee table cocktail cabinets where you're sitting down and looking down. The monitor's still in front of your face, but you often sit down at the cabinet instead of stand up. They'd put two cabinets facing each other, and since you're sitting down, you can't see the person on the other side, and those would be linked. So then you could challenge someone anonymously. Hmm. And then people, that helped it start picking up. In the U.S., I mean, who can say why something catches the public's fancy, but there weren't really many competitive games in the arcade. You might compete on score, but, you know, your beat-em-up was a cooperative kind of game where you were working together. Your run-and-gun was a cooperative type of game. Your space shooters and whatnot tended to be single-player, or, you know, you might compete to see who gets the best score or gets the furthest through the game on a two-player mode, but you're not directly coming at each other. And so I think there was a real hunger. Arcades are haunts for teenagers. Teenagers can be pretty competitive. And I think that this was just a niche that hadn't been expertly filled before. There had been a couple of competitive games, but they just weren't lavished with the same care and attention that Street Fighter II was that made it such a big game. It had all the special moves, which made it fun. And it had the combo system, which came about by accident, actually. Really, the combo system came about by accident. They didn't just sit down and come up with that. No, because what happened is they decided that the moves in the original Street Fighter, that one of the things that held back that original game, is that the special moves were way too hard to execute. The timing window was so tight that if you were off by just uh, you know a second or a microsecond or whatever, you wouldn't be able to do the combo. So the special moves were not very easy to use in the first Street Fighter, which is probably part of the reason why it didn't resonate as well. So they decided to open up the timing windows on doing those button presses. But because they opened up the timing window, if you executed a move fast enough, there was a period of time, I guess, I don't know exactly how it worked technically, but there was a period of time where it was kind of, the game was kind of still waiting for you to input that special move. But if you've already kind of inputted that special move, you're able to start pressing buttons and go on and do normal attacks or other special moves while that original timing window is still open, which the consequence of was that it allowed moves to be chained together without a pause between them. Mm. And that was completely accidental. When they changed the timing window on special moves, they did not realize it would have that cascading effect. Now, obviously, they tested the game. They were aware of it once it existed. They decided that that was a good thing, and so they kept it in. But it was not meant to be that way. It was a completely accidental discovery. It's really the combos, I think, that made Street Fighter II stand out from previous fighting games. It made a more fluid game, a faster game, and a game where it felt like if you built some skill in the game that you could really start dominating your opponents. And I think it's just, I think it's just Street Fighter II felt so good when you played it just flowed so well. The animations was solid. The, the frame rate was solid. The moves just flowed into each other because of this combo system. 
this was just something nobody had ever seen before. It was insane. And the thing is, you talk about encouraging repeat play. Well, now you've got challengers and challengees. And oftentimes, you know, there'd be a kind of informal pattern that would come out of this that winner didn't play for their next game. So if you win the game, then you play the next person and, the, and, and that person actually, you know, pays for your game as well as their game. And then obviously if they win, they get the next game free. So there was kind of this informal system that developed amongst players for challenging each other and for holding court on the machine. And that just became such a moneymaker because people would watch the matches. People would wait for their turn to challenge the current champion. And it just becomes a huge draw. Um, there's a great oral history of Street Fighter II on the website Polygon, where uh, one of their writers talked to a lot of people involved in the game, not just some of the designers of the game, but also some of the salespeople in the U.S. And one of the salespeople there tells the story that, you know, they put a game out on test. A decent game at that time did maybe $600 on test in a week. It just so happened that he was having a distributor meeting before the week was up, and he could tell that the game was doing well. So he figured it was going to better that kind of standard 600, but he didn't know what it was going to be. So he went, when he went to the distributor meeting, he was like, yeah, it's, it's pulling in 800 a week. Well, it turns out he gets back and actually gets the weekly report, pulled in 1400 for the week. Wow. So then the arcade is like, we have another one? He was like, yeah, sure. And he figured, you know, normally what happens is if you put another game in of the same type, it cannibalizes the sales of the first game. Because mostly what it is, is it's just a, you know, people are waiting in line to get their turn to play the game. So if they have another game to play, then you might get a slight bump in sales because since there's shorter lines, you might get a few more people on the machine than you otherwise would. It's sort of like restaurants yeah, where you don't want to be at capacity with a whole bunch of people just waiting to get in. You want to be at 80% capacity or so where you have enough space to allow people to come in and just sit down and eat, but you don't want to be understaffed or overstaffed. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get more customers. You know, no. But, but you still have the same stream in, but you but, want to service them. But they put in. a second Street Fighter in, and now they're both doing 1400 a week. And the reason for that is, is because this is that challenge game, that challenger kind of game. So you'll have, you know, the champion on Machine 1 taking on all comers and the champion on Machine 2 taking on all comers. So you have people constantly on both machines. And then maybe even if you lose on Machine 1, you go challenge the champion on Machine 2 to see if you can get back in. So it just feeds off itself in a way that most arcade video games don't. And it's just huge. You can put in a big arcade, you could have probably put 10 Street Fighter 2 machines in that arcade and they'd all get play because it's all about that competition between players instead of just you against the machine. And it blows up like you wouldn't believe. They sell about 25,000 of them in the U.S. This is outstanding. In the golden age, you had your 50,000 unit sellers, your 70,000 unit, even a couple of 100,000 unit sellers. You did not have that after the golden age. You sold six or 7,000 units of a game in the late 1980s, and you called it a good run. You got 10,000, you were over the moon. 25,000, we have ascended to godhood. Don't have complete sales figures, but that's most likely the the biggest run of an arcade video game post-1982 
may be that something more recent beat its record then, though obviously the arcades declined soon after that, so maybe not. But that was huge, and it sold probably another twenty or 30,000 in Japan. They've never released the final sales figures, but the original version of the game probably sold about 60,000 units worldwide. I mean, the good times were back. I mean, the arcades were not doing bad in the late 80s. It's, it's kind of a myth that people assume that the arcades were just doing poorly. Arcades were actually doing pretty well, though it was, as we discussed in our arcade episode, it was a more even split between video and pinball, with Redemption also providing a good chunk of the change. So video wasn't doing as well as it did in the Golden Age, but arcades overall were doing pretty healthy business. But this was a video game craze, unlike anything. Double Dragon had caused a pretty big excitement in the arcade when it came out in 87. This had nothing on that. Arcades became a destination again for a video game, and that was big news. Because of that, the company started iterating the game to death. (laughs) So in the original Street Fighter 2... You had the 12 characters, the eight playable characters, and the four bosses. The bosses were not playable. The game was doing so well that the American staff, and it was the American staff that pushed this, said, this game has not run its course yet. If we repackage this and make the bosses playable, also let's throw in both players being able to play the same character, because that was not possible in the very original release, and then give it a a new name, we could sell a few thousand more. and. According to the story they tell, uh, Kinzo Tsujimoto was like, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess we can do this if we can get a guarantee up front from distributors of 1,000 units. He wanted a, an upfront order of a certain amount to justify the development costs. The Capcom guy brings in his five biggest distributors or whatever and tells them this. And he goes to his biggest distributor, Betson. He told him all we need at least 1,000 and talked to the Betson guy. And he was like, how many will you take? He's like, we'll take 5,000 cash up front. They knew that this thing was still a hit. So they do the championship edition, which adds the bosses as playable characters and the play as two guys playing the same person. That does okay. Obviously, it doesn't sell 25,000 units because, you know. Reasons. But it sells well. And then, of course, as happens with any best-selling game, there's immediately a problem with counterfeiters. Always happens with these big, popular games. So there's a big business in Taiwan or Hong Kong or Korea or wherever making these counterfeit versions of the game. Some of these counterfeit versions do weird things, like, say, speed the game up. Stop overclocking my CPU. Of course, they're checking out these counterfeit versions, and they're they're pretty slapdash. They're not as, as good. But one of the other salespeople at Capcom, after checking out these games and playing these games to get a feel for them, and then going back and playing the real game at Capcom was like, now this feels really ridiculously slow and sluggish now that I've played this version that speeded up by 25% or whatever. So he was like, we got to do another one. We got to make it faster. Turbo. And Capcom Japan did not want to do this, actually. The designers were kind of incensed by this because they had created the game they wanted to create. They had created the pace of play that they wanted. So for the designers, this was, you know, destroying the delicate balance that they had created. But the American sales office got their way, and yes, we got Street Fighter II Turbo, and that, again, was very popular and very successful. I mean, between all of these Street Fighter II versions, they sold well north of 100,000 cabinets around the world. I mean, this is the biggest arcade video game phenomenon that the world has seen since the Golden Age and, and Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, you know? So now the fighting game is the big deal. It's released in late 1991. 
and really hits through 1992. And then there's a bleed over into the home because it's a competitive game. If you don't want to have to pay for your buddy's game, if you don't want to lose that extra quarter, if you want to keep getting free games, you got to get good at this game. And you're not going to get good at this game just by playing a computer opponent in the arcade. And that's even assuming that you can find a machine that isn't being used for a two-player matchup to practice on. So Street Fighter II becomes the in-demand game for the home. It's released exclusively for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in 1992 because Capcom and Nintendo are really, really close. Closer than any of the others. Nintendo was close with a couple of Japanese developers, but this was the closest relationship of them all. So it was an exclusive to Nintendo on the Super Nintendo, released in 92. 6.3 million copies worldwide. It was the best-selling Capcom game well into the 2000s. I mean, the early Resident Evils didn't beat it. None of the Mega Man games ever beat it. This was, and it's still like the second or third best-selling game they've ever put out. Even though it was only available on one of the two systems, and it was a system that only had about half the market. So they were only selling, well, in the U.S. Obviously, the 6.3 million is worldwide sales, so it includes Japan, where they were dominant. But in the U.S., they only had 50% of the market. They sold 6.3 million worldwide. That was an insane figure. I think that was the best-selling, probably third-party game that had ever been released on an 8- or 16-bit system. Because, I mean, the biggest non-bundled release was Mario 3, which sold, you know, like 13 million or something. And then Donkey Kong Country, which is second-party because it was rare, it sold like 9 million. But I don't think there was another third-party game that ever sold more than that 6.3 million. Both of us have a later edition of that game, the Street Fighter II Turbo Edition. Yep, I have Turbo, and I have another one of the follow-ups, Super Street Fighter II. By the time I had a Super Nintendo, Turbo was already out. That is the superior choice. It does play better faster, in my opinion. Yeah, so it's, it's the perfect synergy. It was the perfect game for the arcade because it encouraged coin drop. But then it was the perfect game for translating the arcade into the home because people would want to play it at home to get good at it before they went to the arcade to show off. Or people just wanted to have their friends over and have a nice tournament in the comfort of their own home where they didn't have to put quarter after quarter after quarter in. Either way, it's a real synergistic kind of experience. They even put the tournament into some of the later editions. I'm not oh, sure yeah. if the Super one had Super it. Street Fighter 2 had tournament mode. We we did at my house. We used to do those. Okay. Tournaments. Yeah, there's so many versions of it. I don't remember. There's at least the three that we've mentioned here. Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 2 Turbo, and then yeah. Super Street Fighter 2. And then there was a Street Fighter 3, and then there were 50 million variants of that. Street Fighter basically killed itself by doing too many variants and spinoffs. It's come back more recently. Street Fighter 4 was very well received a few years back, and now Street Fighter 5 is out. But yeah, it died off over the course of the 90s because they just iterated it to death. So now fighting games are the thing in the arcade, and the arcade is still a very highly profitable space. So if it's the thing in the arcade, it's one of the things in video games. And so, of course, that attracts a lot of competition. A lot of the Japanese companies do pretty straightforward ripoffs, whether it's Fatal Fury or Fighter's History from Data East, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But in the United States, 
there's a company that takes a slightly different approach, and that company is Midway. We may have talked about them. (laughs) By the late 1980s, Midway's video game development was practically non-existent. And this is just because of the North American crash, because the, the downturn in the arcade, while the arcade had recovered after that, the American factories were the factories that took the biggest hit and the biggest losses. And so when the market came back, it was the Japanese that moved in and dominated the market. The American companies were not doing so well. Atari was releasing some games and had some hits, but Bally, Midway, and Williams, they refocused on pinball, or in the case of Bally, on their casinos and slot machines and whatnot, and largely left video games. And then Bally completely left video games by selling Bally Midway to Williams, which then started releasing all of its video games under the Midway name. So this Midway we're talking about is a combination of what used to be Bally Midway and then Williams Electronics. But then in the late 80s, Eugene Jarvis came back to Williams after a long absence. Eugene Jarvis is the man behind Defender and the man behind Robotron 2084, two of the biggest hits of the Golden Age. Very well-regarded games, still considered classics today. When the crash happened, he left Williams to get himself an advanced degree and, and got out of the business. But now he decided to come back in. And he decided that there was only one way for an American arcade company to remain relevant in the face of the Japanese. The Japanese had all of the advantage in artists and animators and team sizes and all of that. But the place where the Japanese traditionally lag behind is advanced technology. The Japanese always get there eventually, and then they always get the most out of it. They possibly can but they're never quite at the forefront. So his plan for Williams going forward was to be at the cutting edge technologically. So they went to a 32-bit hardware system. They went to high-definition monitors, high-definition screens. And they went to a new system that he developed with uh, the aid of a couple of other people that allowed for digitized graphics. Filming people in front of a green screen doing stuff then digitizing those images to turn them into sprites in the game. So they used this new digitization technology of theirs in a couple of games. They used it in a kind of straightforward run-and-gun called NARC. They used it in a light gun-type shooting game based on Terminator 2. Then one of the artists at the company, John Tobias, a young guy but a very talented artist, he started doing professional comic book art when he was a teenager, decided that he wanted to advance the state of the art. Here we go again, using a a fighting game to advance the state of the art in animation. He wanted to advance the state of the art in animation. And he figured that the best way to do that was with really big characters. Narc had digitized characters, but they had to be a little smaller because it's one man taking on hordes of enemies kind of thing. He figured that the only way to do a game with bigger characters human characters is to reduce the number of characters on the screen at any one time, which naturally lends itself to one-on-one fighting game. So it was John Tobias that had the idea to do a fighting game using this digitization technology. So then he got together with Ed Boone, a programmer who had largely done pinball games, but had done a couple of video games as well, who agreed to do this project with them. Because they were using these digitized graphics, real people, they wanted to use a real person. 
as the basis for this game and use their signature moves and everything. So they wanted to do a Jean-Claude Van Damme game. Jean-Claude Van Damme being at the time, you know, the kind of the most famous martial arts action hero in the United States at the time. So they approach Van Damme's people and they just want to call the game Van Damme. And it turns out he already has a, an exclusive deal with Sega or somebody. They think it was Sega, but he had already signed a deal with another video game company for the use of his likeness and whatnot. So they couldn't do that. So they end up creating their own cast of characters instead. And they get local people they know, people from gyms and whatnot, to uh, get in front of the green screen and do all the moves uh, that they're going to digitize and whatnot. This, of course, is the game that becomes Mortal Kombat. Which is, of course, why it looks so different from Street Fighter 2. You look at Street Fighter 2, it's very obvious that every single character is a sprite, where you had a sprite animator who went pixel by pixel, designed, and made that character. Mm -hmm. When you look at Mortal Kombat, it looked like a pixelated human, a real, full human. All the details shrunk and put in the game. And that's because, of course, they were real humans. Or in the case of uh, Gorio, a uh, claymation <laughs> mock-up, <laughs> the multi-arm monster guy. <laughs> but yeah, they were actually real humans doing all of those moves. The concept that Mortal Kombat introduced, Street Fighter II had combos. Mortal Kombat introduced something called juggling. Familiar with the concept of juggling? I am familiar with that. That is when you... I love doing this particularly. I brought this up earlier. <laughs> I like just juggling the person by just hitting them with a bunch of fireballs in Mortal Kombat 2 as the boss character, and then I push them all the way back to the end of the map, then cause fireballs to raise from below, knocking them forward, and then hitting them with fireballs right at the right spot. The idea with juggling is you are doing all these combinations that the other player does not have a chance to respond. If you do it correctly, you can pretty much... 100% slaughter them and win unless you make a mistake or the other person somehow manages to get something in they usually have a very small very precise window to get in if you don't know what you're doing you're going to be in the air and you're gone that's right and again it came about by accident it's one of these things that they didn't realize was going to happen but once they noticed it they developed around it and so that was the big thing that it had and of course the other big thing is they noticed that there are periods of time when you get a bunch of hits in on your characters. They had it set up so that the other character becomes stunned, just kind of waves back and forth in place. They were kind of like, well, you know, that's, that's fine, but that's kind of boring. There's nothing going on there. What if at the end of the match, when that player is stunned, we put a little something extra special in there, something that's difficult to pull off, but if it's pulled off well, gives you a kind of special knockout blow. Fatality! <laughs> That's right. So, of course, the other thing it's known for is its elaborate fatalities, where you would rip a person's head and spine out, or rip a person's heart out, or disintegrate them, or whatever else. Punch them so that they fall all the way down into the spikes and get impaled. Yes, definitely. So, this game is released in 1992. To a well-meaning, wholesome teenage audience. Yeah, and it's a huge hit. The thing that makes it difficult is it has digitized graphics. So Street Fighter 2 is violent, but it's cartoon violence. I mean, obviously you don't have the fatalities, but even setting aside the fatalities, 
it's very clear animated cartoon violence. It's really no different than Looney Tunes <laughs> in its own way. This is a game where the people look like people. And yes, they look very crudely like people today. It's primitive technology compared to what we have now. But especially at the time to someone who had never really seen digitized graphics before, they looked like real people. I will put into the show notes Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat. And I want you to look at them side by side. You will notice Street Fighter 2, how different that looks compared to Mortal Kombat. And compared to the two of them, Mortal Kombat looks so much more realistic. Yes, compared to today, nothing looks realistic. Just think, these are your options back in the day. Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat. Look at them and think, this is the height of the games out at the time. You will see such a stark difference between Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2. It is night and day. That's right, and it really exemplified the different approaches of American and Japanese developers at the time, because the Japanese, very visual culture, big history of animation and comic drawing, manga and whatnot, so they had the legions of artists. I mean, their high schools had manga clubs and anime clubs where people who were interested in that stuff would get together and draw their own manga. Miyamoto was in his high school's manga club, and that very much influenced who he was as a designer. They were churning out lots of animators and artists in a way that the United States necessarily wasn't. So they had the market cornered on cartoon-like animation and, and art and could make it beautiful in a way that American companies just couldn't because they didn't have the same time and resources. On the American side, you have technology. The Americans can often get ahead on technology compared to what's going on in Japan, because the Japanese, it takes them a little longer to assimilate the newer technology. Mortal Kombat's that technological approach. Of course, it causes all sorts of furor. It's, we talked about the console release in the Acclaim episode, so we won't go huge into that, but it, it sells millions upon millions of copies and sells most of them on the Sega Genesis because Nintendo edited out the blood and edited out the fatalities. The console version causes the uproar in Congress because they're so lifelike and you're ripping their hearts out and you're ripping their spines out and all think of the poor children. And so Mortal Kombat is one of those games that directly leads to the Entertainment Software Ratings Board and the game rating system that we have today. That again, though, just goes to show how hugely influential fighting games were. In 1992, without Street Fighter II, it's possible that the Genesis would have buried the Super Nintendo that year, but the Super Nintendo had Street Fighter 2. Then the next year, it's reversed. 1993, Mortal Kombat is only available uncut on the Sega Genesis. It's on the Super Nintendo, but compromised. And because of the amount of colors that the Super Nintendo can show compared to the Genesis, it can have more colors on the screen at once. It actually looks much better on the Super Nintendo because it can display more colors. And when you have digitized graphics, you have far more nuance and different color shadings. So it actually looks better on the Super Nintendo, but it's the Genesis version that sells because that's where the blood is. And so, again, it's reversed where that's the year that Sega crushes Nintendo in market share in the United States, and it's largely, again, on the back of a fighting game. Fighting games are determining the outcomes of console wars, essentially. So that's really, in a way, the high watermark of fighting games is when the Street Fighter II and Mortal Kombat are doing so well, but they continue to be very relevant for a while longer because, again, as we get into new modes of animation, the fighting games are on the forefront. So then we get to 
polygonal graphics and the beginnings of 3D. And we're getting hardware systems now that are strong enough to do polygonal graphics. And so in Japan, Sega's great designer, Yu Suzuki, is starting to play around with polygons on their new Model 1 hardware. First thing he creates is a racing game. Virtua Racing is a test platform for this. But then he wants to build a fighting game with actual 3D characters. So he creates Virtua Fighter. Virtua Fighter was never as big in the United States. It's kind of slow, it's kind of cumbersome, and the polygons are very basic. There were some real limits to that Model 1 hardware. In Japan, though, Virtua Fighter is huge. He wanted to create something very grounded, very realistic, compared to some of the other fighting games. So all of the contestants in the original Virtua Fighter have more realistic fighting styles. And yeah, they're a little slow, and yeah, they're a little blocky, but they're fully realized 3D characters doing these fighting styles, and that just really appealed to the Japanese market. It's probably the reason that the PlayStation, ironically, because it's a Sega game, Sega has its consoles too, it's the reason probably that the PlayStation ended up being successful. It wasn't on the PlayStation, obviously, because it's a Sega game. Sega has their own platform. But when Ken Kutaragi was first going around to Japanese third-party developers and telling them, I've got this new game system that does 3D graphics and it's going to be the next wave in video games, all of them were like, no, that kind of hardware is years away still. The hardware doesn't exist yet to do 3D games well. Then Virtua Fighter comes out in the arcade. And obviously arcade hardware is always more sophisticated than console hardware. But still, this is proof that it's happening right now. And after Virtua Fighter comes out, the attitudes of the Japanese third-party software companies completely change, and they start believing that the PlayStation is actually something that can work. So there's the power of the fighting game again in the early 90s. It determined partially the fate of the PlayStation, even though it wasn't even released on the PlayStation. And then when Sega released the Saturn... Of course, it had a port of Virtua Fighter. The Saturn was a dismal failure in the U.S. Dismal. sold like 2 million copies or 2 million units or something. It sold 6 million units in Japan, which was still a small number. It ended up being a failure. But initially, it sold very well and even initially outsold the PlayStation because it had Virtua Fighter. And they didn't do bundling in Japan. So Virtua Fighter did not come bundled with the Saturn, but it was purchased at essentially a one-to-one -one ratio. It's kind of like the Switch in Breath of the Wild today. If you were buying a Saturn, you were buying Virtua Fighter. And it drove early sales of the Saturn, even though it couldn't sustain it over the life of the console and the PlayStation ultimately won. Then Namco decides in the middle of the decade that they need to get more involved with 3D hardware. They've always had 3D hardware. They've had polygonal games before, but they hadn't really done any human animation or whatnot in 3D their game development group decides that they need to start learning how to do that better. So they decide to make a fighting game, again, as a way for them to better understand how to work in a 3D environment. The fighting game has become the go-to genre for experimenting with new animation techniques, with new graphical techniques, because it provides the kind of the biggest challenge and the biggest test of how to do these new things. And so they go on to create Tekken. That's created on a PlayStation-based hardware that's jointly developed with Sony. So Tekken comes out in 95, or might have been 94 in the arcade, 95 in the home. But it was too late to be a launch title in 
Japan. It wasn't done yet on console, but it is one of the launch titles in the United States. And you better believe that Tekken was one of the drivers of early PlayStation sales in the United States because you've still got that symbiosis between the home and the arcade. Just about anyone during that era who had a PlayStation had a copy of Tekken. Exactly. Big deal. Of course, we talked about this in our Namco episode a little bit. Sony didn't have strong first-party development because they were relatively new to video games. They have strong first-party development now, but they didn't then. So they were really reliant on Namco and their Ridge Racer and Tekken games to drive sales of the PlayStation because they couldn't create their own great games like Nintendo and Sega always did. But Namco, because they were spurned by Nintendo in the way we discussed in the Namco episode, and because they didn't want to give a huge boost to Sega because Sega was their competitor in the arcade, they forged a very close relationship with Sony, and Tekken was instrumental in the success of the PlayStation. So there it is again. Street Fighter II, instrumental to the Super Nintendo's success. Mortal Kombat, instrumental to the Genesis success. Virtua Fighter, instrumental to the Saturn's success insofar as the Saturn was successful. At the end of the day, it wasn't. But still, any success it had in Japan, it owed to Virtua Fighter. And now Tekken is a big part of how the PlayStation becomes successful. This reaches its height with Soul Calibur, which is Namco's essentially... I'm simplifying, obviously, but it's essentially Namco's Tekken with weapons. First game was called Soul Edge. It was more of a prototype than anything. Soul Calibur was kind of the first full flowering of that. Soul Calibur comes out on Dreamcast, comes out on the Sega system. It is a nearly flawless port of the arcade game. It was a pretty game. It was a flawless port of the arcade game on the Dreamcast. But it also, because it's a console game, it had more features. So it looks as good, it plays as good, it feels as good as the arcade. Plus, it has special extra features, and you don't have to spend all your quarters playing it. That kind of killed the symbiotic relationship between fighters in the arcade and in the home. And I think paradoxically, also then kind of started the process of killing the fighting game as a frontline system-selling piece of software. Obviously, the arcade is in decline in the late 90s. You have the internet now. You have LAN play, peer-to-peer play, modem play, etc. So a lot of teenagers are playing games at home with each other. They're playing first-person shooters and real-time strategy games now instead of spending all their quarters at the arcade. Arcades are declining in that sense. The arcades companies try to compensate with bigger and more elaborate cabinets of a type that you can't play in the home. And so there comes to be a real emphasis on target shooting games and racing games with elaborate controllers or elaborate cabinets, which has the dual effect of pushing out other genres like fighting games, but also causing a lot of smaller arcades to have to close because they can't afford to pay for these huge expensive cabinets. So things get consolidated in your Dave and Buster's types locations instead of your strip mall or your shopping mall arcade, which a lot of them close down. You don't really need to go to the arcade to play a fighting game anymore. Maybe if you're a hardcore player, you need to get one of those fancy customized fighting sticks that has a arcade quality joystick and arcade quality buttons on it to play on your home system. But there's nothing special anymore about playing a fighting game in the arcade. If you have a 
a Dreamcast or a PlayStation 2 with a custom arcade joystick, you got everything you can get in the arcade and you're not spending all your quarters playing it. So the fighting game fades from prominence in the arcade. And I think when the fighting game fades from prominence in the arcade, it kind of, it fades from prominence in the mind of the general public. The hardcore fighting fans are still playing them at home, but you don't have a showcase for them in the same way. You know, first-person shooters are becoming more and more popular, and it's just tastes change. And so obviously there's still fighting games, and there were plenty of fighting games that, that got some notoriety. There's still beat-em-ups. Yeah, there's still beat-em-ups, too. Castle Crashers is kind of a throwback beat-em-up. Beat-em-ups really didn't survive the fighting game boom, and they didn't transition into 3D is part of the problem. It was hard to do a good beat-em-up in 3D. Even your polygonal 3D fighting games make comparably little use of the Z-axis. They make some, and they've made more as time has gone on. They still maintain a lot of that flat, one person on this side, one person on this side gameplay and, and comparably less use of the Z-axis. It's very much a side view fight back and forth. You go left, you go right. right. The amount of Z-axis is I may dodge by moving up or moving down on the Z-axis. You may have a little bit of, hey, the background looks 3D and you have people throwing stuff from the audience into your play area or you destroy part of the building and fall down into another section of the fighting area or whatever. Mm -hmm. So beat-em-ups didn't really transition to 3D well and polygonal graphics well. That kind of killed them. Also, they were just overshadowed by the fighting games, which became the absolute new hotness. But you still had historically significant beat-em-ups. Gauntlet is the one that comes to mind in my... Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd really call the Gauntlet games beat-em-ups, though. I mean, they're a little different than that. Because, of course, they started out as overhead with the overhead. They're almost like shooters. And obviously, the Dark Legacy and whatnot are, are not overhead anymore. They're 3D. But they're really classified a little differently than, than a beat-em-up. I'm not sure that there were any significant beat-em-ups in the arcade after the Dungeons & Dragons games that Capcom put out in 94, 96, and even by then, everyone else had pretty much given up on beat-em-ups. In the late 80s, early 90s, you had Altered Beast and Golden Axe from Sega, you had all the Konami stuff going on, TMNT, Simpsons, X-Men, you had Double Dragon sequels coming out, you had Bad Dudes, you know, you had kind of this confluence of a bunch of them, and it really thinned out after 92 because that's when Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat just took over that market. So it's really the Street Fighter 2 Mortal Kombat was really the thing that made beat-em-ups really not have relevance anymore. Exactly. People found it was a lot more fun to beat up their friends than beat up the computer. <laughs> and then fighting games themselves eventually petered out for the reasons that I expounded on a second ago. So, of course, there's still fighting games that exist today, and there are big tournaments for them with prize money and everything. I mean, they're a part of the modern esports scene. But they used to be system sellers. They used to be the games that convinced you to buy a Genesis, to buy a Super Nintendo, to buy a PlayStation. And they don't have that kind of relevance anymore. They're still around, but their heyday is definitely over. Yeah, the typical fighter versus game these days is really very niche we have a friend who is very much into fighters and mm -hmm. still plays them he actually has one of those console joystick button things that you can plug into a console and play and have that arcade experience he even goes and 
plays in a few tournaments locally where he plays and fights and does his thing and has a lot of fun doing it. Mm-hmm. If you're into fighters, there's still a very lively, active community out there. But like Alex said, it is not the big focus of the video gaming community as a whole like it used to be. Right. I guess the only thing to say at this point is, what will we be talking about for however long next time? (laughs) Well, I thought we might go to, this is kind of a talk of a genre that was very technology driven and for a brief time was at the top of its game. And I thought we might continue in that theme and choose another technology driven area that at one time people thought would save the arcades when they were in the midst of their crash, but at the end of the day couldn't do so. And that is the Laserdisc game. It's not really a genre because there were a couple of different ways that people use Laserdiscs, but it was a class of games that was new and exciting and was going to save everything, and it didn't. But for better or for worse, it did leave us a few legacies that we still uh, have with us today, like the interactive movie and the QuickTime event. So have a little bit of discussion about the Laserdisc. All right. We will cover the Laserdisc and all of its fun next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.